Hello and welcome to this episode of ESG Fitness Podcast. I actually recorded this as a live in the Commit to Six group, but I forgot that I wanted to read out this incredible message from or post from one of the Commit to Six members. And I wanted to read it out because I thought it quite nicely shows the balance and also the reality of like losing weight long term in a sustainable way while enjoying your life. So this is from Kelly. She says, hi all, wanting to share both a scale and non-scale victory. The last three weeks I've been away from home, both a mix of travel and visiting family. In the past, I would have never let myself do this because I would have feared falling off track and being away from routine. But I'm so, so glad that I've been able to reframe my mindset towards health and fitness and that I've started to learn how to balance making memories, eating out, drinking wine and celebrating with a healthy lifestyle, getting my steps in, hitting my protein, eating enough fruit and veg. It was not perfect. Sorry, it was not a perfect three weeks. In fact, I had two effort evenings about one week in and I was pretty and that was pretty disappointing. Um, but there was no other option but to continue. And I'm really, really glad that I did, despite my slip ups. I just got back on track and did the basics and focused on choosing my indulgences, which did still include evening ice creams. I had not weighed myself in three weeks and not having access to the scale was actually good for me in hindsight. There was no ability to overthink the random ups and downs. I'm now back home, popped on the scales out of curiosity, and I'm down 2.5 pounds. Truly a complete shocker. Weight loss aside, I am most happy, sorry, I'm most proud and happy of the change in mindset and so, so thankful and appreciative of this community. I never thought that I would get to this place in my health and fitness journey. While I still have further to go, I'm so glad that I didn't, sorry, I'm so glad that I don't have to put my life on hold. To, to get results in the meantime and that aside from the fact I for some reason really struggle to read it um is exactly what commit six is all about and I think there's so many lessons in this so like one letting not letting a few slip-ups ruin your progress just getting back on track I think the not weighing yourself and not being like oh my god I've ruined it all now because an inevitable increase in weight if you've you know gone over your calories a bit eaten a bit more it's completely normal and inevitable and unavoidable but actually just not seeing that and focusing on how you feel getting yourself back on track makes such a big difference and look she's down 2.5 pounds boom because imperfect action works and then you can go and enjoy your life while also getting results because the last thing I want is people to put their life on hold for fat loss that is what is tripping people up The other thing I want to say before I get into this episode is a few people recently have been sharing the podcast with their mates and like their mates or them. Like I've had just incredible feedback about the podcast. And one, thank thank you so much to people that reach out and tell me it because sometimes it's like talking to yourself here and you're like, is this helping people? And then someone will pop up and be like, this really helped me. And I'm like, oh, okay, (laughs) maybe I'm not wasting my time here. And then secondly, to the people who share it with their friends or their family or someone they think would find it useful it is so so helpful to me so I can't thank you enough for doing that and there seems to have been a fair few people doing that recently so really really appreciate it now I will get into the episode I hope you enjoy hello and welcome to this episode of the ESG fitness podcast 
I'm doing a solo one today, but I am doing a Q&A episode because we have a ton to get through on Commit to Six. And I'm sorry about the audio quality of this. Um, I'm in London. I didn't have my microphone. Not that I often use it at home, but it also does feel quite loud here. And a worrying amount of ambulances go by and I'm hoping that I'm staying right next to the hospital. Anyway, okay, first question. Tips to help with going through the dip. Okay, um, there's also a couple more. Oh, right, I will start with that. So the dip is a term coined by Seth Godin, who is an excellent writer. He's actually a marketer, but I think a lot of his principles are just life transferable principles. So the dip is essentially the notion that when you start something, it's very new and exciting and you often have a lot of motivation for it. And then you have this dip. And then towards the end, hey, it might it might be more exciting again, right? And the best analogy I've heard for this is a marathon. You start a marathon, it's all fun and exciting, you feel good, you've got loads of energy. And then in the middle, like it's quite hard, you've got a long way to go and, and you're probably lacking motivation and energy. And then towards the end, again, you get this boost because you're like, oh, I can see, like the end is in sight. So this is like the observation of people don't give up on a marathon at the start or at the end, they give up in the middle if they're going to give up, right? And it's quite transferable to most things. You're not normally, people don't normally give up on their diet in the first like two or three days, right? And they don't normally give up on their diet right before they reach their goal. When they normally give up is somewhere in the middle where it's not new and exciting anymore. And maybe they're at the stage, and this often happens about three weeks in, where they're at the stage where they've put in quite a lot of effort, but they've not yet seen a big result from that yet. And then another um, few analogies or a few examples that he gave in, in his book, The Dip, which, by the way, I would highly recommend. It's very short, um, which I like, but it just makes the point and it gets out. Like, it's just, I think a lot of these kind of self-help books there's like one point that they're making that they genuinely could have made in like one chapter and they've just decided to make a whole book about it. And I'm like, waste, what waste of everybody's time. Just condense it down. Anyway, he hasn't done that. So a few other examples of things like, I think one of them was like, when you learn how to snowboard, initially it's quite new and exciting. And then you get to that stage where like, you're not actually very good at snowboarding yet, but you're not a complete beginner. So it's not new and exciting. It's just like the frustrating stage like probably when you're drive when you're learning to drive a car and you're at that stage where I don't know like you can kind of drive a little bit but you're not that good yet and it's a bit annoying and you can't drive on your own you just have to practice clutch work or something like that's when most people get bored and give up not in their first session where they're like oh my god I'm driving a car for the first time ever and not when they're right about to sit their test when they're like almost ready to pass so tips to get through this. One of the biggest things I think helps is the realization that it's just required. Like most of my motivation comes from realizing that I don't need to be that skilled. Actually the biggest like life hack or the biggest competitive advantage you can have is just doing things for longer than other people will. And I think when it comes to fat loss, that's especially true. Like everyone is completely capable of losing fat and building muscle, everyone no exceptions it's just you have to do it for probably longer than what you think 
you might need to do it for and if you extrapolate that out to everything like do you know what if you want to get good at podcasting do more of them if you want to get good talking on camera do it more often if you want to get good at playing the piano do it more if you want to get good at pull-ups do them more often right and I think that that realization for me of like most people who are ahead of me some sure some of them are maybe like quite quite lucky or more skilled or had some kind of advantage but I just like to assume that most of them have just worked harder at it they've been doing it longer they've put in more reps they've done more hours and I think that belief helps the other thing I always talk about really like motivation and get getting through the dip is kind of another way of saying like you're almost waiting for a result like stop waiting for a result you're living your life what are you waiting for why do you when people are like oh I'm really impatient why do you need patience just live your life just get on with it you'll be losing fat at the same time it's like being like oh, I'm so impatient for this plant here to grow why are you putting your life on hold for there's a plant here by the way I'm not going to move it in case you break something um but yeah like why are you putting your life on hold for something you know is going to take time you go and you live your life and then you enjoy that the plant looks beautiful and it's growing at the same time cool same with your health and fitness goals like go and live your life don't put it on hold then you don't need half as much patience and if you're not doing a diet which I know you're not you're not doing a diet that's miserable then why are you impatient just accept that that's just the way it takes right like you don't get impatient for a kid to grow you're just like oh yeah it'll take years for this child to fully form into its adult form um you can tell I don't have children right okay also tips for going out to eat with others and choosing to eat something in line with your goals but feeling jealous of others eating foods you would have preferred to eat okay so this is very much like your goals your choices and responsibility for that you absolutely can have anything on that menu but will it impact your fat loss goals yeah probably now also to, to kind of caveat here if you're doing that I don't know once a week once a month then it's probably not going to make very much difference if you're going out numerous times a week then you need to be a little bit more clever with the choices that you're making and also just accept that like yeah okay I'm choosing to do this because this is in line with my goals at the moment that other person probably doesn't have the same goals right or if they do they're making allowances elsewhere for that and I guess that is just an example of yeah ownership and choosing like choose choose your what am I trying to say make choices based on what your goals are and yeah sure you might be a little bit jealous of someone else sometimes I see someone eating something and I'm like mm, I'd love to have that that looks great but I also really want to stay in great shape and feel my best and I know that that wouldn't be in line with that so I'm choosing that over that right might, you might also think another example of this might be I don't know you see someone go on holiday and you're like oh I wish I could go on that holiday it looks so amazing I'm a little bit jealous of it well realistically you probably could but it would mean that you'd have to cut back in other areas because it's going to cost you money to go on that holiday right it's like where spend your money and spend your calories where they mean most to you <laughs> um yeah okay uh someone told me I should be taking electrolytes do you have any views on them you probably don't, unless you are very sweaty, you probably don't need to be taking in electrolytes. Um, the only kind of exceptions to that would be people who, now and again, when people go quite like clean with their eating and don't salt their foods or anything, they can need, to, well, I mean, I would then would just prefer that they have like some salt on their foods, but 
or some kind of flavoring. Um, you, main point, you probably don't need electrolytes unless you are losing a lot in sweat, in which case, yes. So if you live in a very hot country, would probably be a good idea to do. If you're in the UK and you're not doing like long, hard endurance type exercise, probably don't need to be taking electrolytes. But I'm sure that many a podcast will tell you that you do. And then I just caveat that with like, if anyone's telling you anything like that, just have a little think about how much they're probably getting paid to tell you that and whether you still want to take on that information or not. Then do what you will with that. Okay, another one. I'm a long-term sufferer of migraines. I'm very sorry to hear this because they are horrendous. Anyway. I managed to get to a point through diet and lifestyle that I only get them around the time of the month. This is except if I exercise too early on in the day. I would love to be able to run before work as to free up time in the evening. But this and the gym and swimming, etc., always ends up in a migraine. I've tried eating before exercise, eating after exercise. I've tried electrolytes. I've tried drinking loads of water, but nothing seems to work. Any thoughts or am I just someone who can't exercise too early on? I had to stop doing parkrun, which I love because it knocked me out for the entire weekend. Oh, that's such a shame. I'm really sorry. I don't have that much to say on that. Um, it does seem like you've tried all the right things. It would be interesting to see. I mean, you've even tried like, if you gym in the morning, is that the same impact as if you run? Is it like any exercise in the morning? Is there anything extra you could be doing? It is, it's really annoying because migraines are freaking horrible and I'm so sorry that you experienced them and often there isn't really any kind of like cure for them it's interesting that early exercise is a trigger I wonder like mechanistically what what is going on there if I have any extra thoughts I will come back to you but obviously speak to your doctor about this generally they're not particularly good um oh one thing could try although you wouldn't want to do this. Mm, this may be bad advice. You wouldn't want to do this long term, right? It's probably being triggered by something to do with like the vasoconstriction and vaso. Um, why, why have I lost the word for the opposite of constriction? Relaxation anyway, of your um, arteries, which is probably what's causing like pressure in your head and then causing the migraine. One of the treatments for migraines is um, aspirin because it, it vasodilates your arteries. That's the word I was looking for, which means that you it can often like, if I feel a migraine coming on and I take, I think it's like three times the normal dose of aspirin, then often that means that I won't get the migraine or it won't be half as bad. I think that works, but then I also don't know if I'm like, did I just think I was going to get migraine? I wasn't going to get one anyway. And maybe there's a placebo element to that, potentially. Saying that, would I recommend that you take that much aspirin every day around exercise? <laughs> Absolutely not. So that might be something to, just interesting from a mechanistic standpoint, but definitely not something to implement. Um, and then I'm just wondering like, what is happening there? And maybe, I mean, you could try it with like a really big cool down, like a, a gradual cool down. But I still think there must be some kind of like higher pressure in the morning that your body's not enjoying, unfortunately. And I'm sorry that I don't have the best advice for that. Okay, next one. Going to buy some creatine and suggestions came up on the app to buy amino acids in a bundle. 
is it beneficial to take both? Reading up on amino acids, they do have benefits, but don't want to take anything unnecessary. What's your opinion on them? Absolute waste of money. Amino acids are one of the like most pointless supplements anywhere uh, uh, that you could be consuming. Do not waste your money on them. Um, they are essentially the building blocks of protein. But if you're getting in enough protein, there's absolutely no need to be having amino acids. So no, 100% do not buy them. They're also a little bit misleading because you can get away with not putting the calories on them because they're technically like the way that calorie labels are broken down. It's like there's this much protein in here and protein has four calories per gram. And thus there's this many calories and then same with carbs, same with fats, right? So because amino acids are like a structure of within protein that you don't have to put the calories on them. So it can look like, oh, this is totally calorie free. Well, it's not, there's still calories in them. I mean, not a huge amount, but the amount that some people used to just like chug down, um, especially BCAAs that probably did add up over time, especially with like bikini girls that were most likely to be taking them and trying to diet on 1200 calories and then probably drinking like three, 400 calories of BCAAs throughout the day as well. Long story short, no. Um, Lily, hi Emma. Usually after training legs, I get DOMS. I'm quite active. And so I just had the fear that I wasn't recording this. <laughs> I am. Thank the Lord. Okay. Um, I'm quite active and I ride horses most days. Horses most day. Horses most days? Whatever. It's not very pleasant after leg day. I'm wondering if it would be helpful to train three to four full body days per week instead of doing a dedicated leg day. Are there downsides to full bodies versus push-pull legs? Um, I don't think it is going to be that beneficial because there's legs in push and pull as well. Uh, what you could do is reduce the volume on leg day if you're finding that it it's really you get really bad DOMS. I would be tempted to tell you at this point to push through because you've only probably done a couple of these sessions and your body's going to get used to it very quickly. And you won't be, trust me, you won't be half as sore the next week and the next week. Like that first week that you do a new workout, that's going to be the sorest you ever are. So do another couple of weeks like you are. If you're struggling, reach out in the group and I'll amend some things for you. But at the moment, I think I would prefer that you just push through on that one okay Joanna I know we always talk about energy in versus energy out and that is what directly creates the amount of fat that you do or don't have however it can sometimes feel like your body does want to be a certain weight particularly if you don't have a huge amount of fat to lose and that you can work for weeks to get scales down. And then after a day or so of say eating 2000 calories, they jump back up way quicker than they jump down. Is this a myth or do some people stay slim actually, sorry, or do some people who stay slim actually live in a bit of a deficit as that's their habit? And so they maintain a lower weight easier. No. People who are maintaining a weight are not living in a deficit. It's impossible to happen. What might be happening on that front is, let's say, for example, my maintenance calories were 2000, but I always, you know, I was like the normal person. By the way, it is the norm to overestimate the amount of calories you're consuming. So if I was like, okay, I'm like a normal person, I'm probably going to think that I'm eating 2000 calories, but I'll be closer to 2300 odd calories. 
So actually, I'm going to always try and eat 1800 calories, which technically on a calculator looks like I'd be living in a deficit. But realistically, with just the inaccuracies of tracking, I'm actually consuming about my maintenance needs. That could definitely be happening for a lot of people. The other thing here is you're right that your body does tend to protect a certain weight. I think we spoke about that in the last Q&A we did about um, set weight. So that was like two, sorry, set point theory. That was like two episodes back. So have a little listen to that as well, because I'm going to go into too much detail here. But your body does push back to a certain set point. Now, this has nothing to do with you being in a deficit, but your body somehow like storing extra calories. That's not what's happening. What's happening is because your body wants to defend its now, like now quite scarce energy source, if it can tell that you don't have a lot of body fat, one thing on like a mechanistic level that can happen is one of your hunger hormones, leptin, will be slightly lower because you have lower body fat levels, right? So leptin is primarily produced by fat cells. So if you have lower body fat, then you produce less leptin, then the brain is like, oh, there's not actually that much energy available here. So I'm going to increase hunger a little bit to try and preserve as much energy or to try and get in more energy, essentially. The other thing it does is makes you less likely to habitually move around. So like spontaneous activity. This is a little bit more easy to measure now because we have like fitness apps and trackers. So you can still see like you're getting your steps in, but even things like how much you gesticulate, which obviously I do. I wonder how many calories a day I burn just gesticulating ideas. Um, anyway, things like that actually naturally uh, you start to do those less again to preserve energy. And now that might not seem like very much, but over the course of a day, a week, a year, whatever, then you are saving a bit of energy. On a more extreme level here, this drop in leptin is also what signals your brain to be like, you know what, we really need to preserve our own energy. So we want to shut off non-essential things like your menstrual cycle in order to preserve as much energy as possible. And also probably because you know, if you did get pregnant, you don't have enough fat and energy to give life to another you know grow another human being inside you so there are things that do happen but and and when I think think people hear that and then think oh yeah you're right I am sticking to all my targets and not losing weight no 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 no. it's now becoming harder to stick to your targets because hunger's ramped up and energy expenditure is, is is lower which means it's harder for you to create a deficit and that's why it seems like you're not losing weight in response to your part about let's say you're eating 2000 calories for a couple of days and then the scales quite quickly jump up the scales do not measure fat loss right so a lot of that isn't fat it's just water retention food volume the fact your toilet habits have changed or you know loads of things but it's not all fat and even if like yeah it's just impossible to all be fat because let's say your your dieting calories are 1500 and you've come up to 2000 calories, like there's still not that much more and it certainly isn't fat, but sure your weight might jump up, not the same. So remember that, but excellent, excellent question. Okay. If I'm lucky enough to have plenty of time to work out without having to rush home for something, if I finish 
the strength training portion, is it okay to add some low intensity cardio for 20 to 30 minutes at the end? Is there any extra benefit to doing it? Yes, great, definitely a benefit. Benefit to health, benefit to your energy expenditure, potentially benefit to your mood. Oh, I read this really interesting study the other day. So I was gonna say one of the, the potential negatives here is sometimes when you ramp up cardio a lot, and this is not a lot, but if you do take cardio to the extreme, your hunger levels can also increase and then it makes it harder for you to stick to a deficit. And actually, you, I tend to find this quite a lot with people who do like couch to 5K and then end up putting on weight instead of losing weight, which was half the reason they were doing the couch to 5K because their hunger levels have increased. So bear that in mind. But one interesting thing about this, because the relationship between hunger and exercise really isn't that simple. And some people experience increased hunger after they exercise. And some people actually experience reduced hunger. And then there's also an impact of the type of exercise. And this study was really interesting. And it was done on mice because it's quite hard to replicate in humans. But it was looking at an enzyme that is produced by lactate and the impact of that on, how did they do this again? The impact of that on your hunger levels. So it showed that people, well, mice, who have higher levels of this enzyme had lower hunger levels and ended up consuming less food ad-lib, so like in free living conditions. And the way that you would increase that is by doing exercise like HIIT training, where you're going to get a lot of lactate buildup, right? So um, when you, you have to produce a lot of energy without the presence of oxygen, you get this increase in this byproduct of um, carbohydrate breakdown, which is called lactate, and that starts to accumulate. And that's when you get like, if you've ever done, I don't know, like a 400 meter sprint or what else, maybe like rowing intervals or like bike sprints or something, you get this like burning in your legs. That's lactate buildup. Sorry, I had to nip away. Um, and so, yeah, what was so interesting about this study was that this increase in essentially something that's a byproduct of lactate uh, reduced hunger levels. So maybe that has something to do with that. And then I guess whether, I mean, they were looking at it as whether it could be used in a bit as an obesity, as an obesity drug, um, but also that maybe the type of exercise will influence your hunger response and I did always notice like so I used to run 400 meters and I did always notice that after training which would always be like quite heavy lactate filled sessions I'd not really be very hungry but I always assumed it was because you feel so sick as well with that level of lactate buildup so yes one interesting I will report back if I have any uh, extra info on that but at the moment I don't think it's been replicated in humans so we will we will see. Okay, is there such a thing as quote unquote big boned? I'm only five foot three, but always weighed much more than my friends of similar height, even though I didn't quote unquote look it. I still do. And when I hear about weights of people in the group on questions, I wonder about this. For instance, goal weight seems to be most people's starting. For instance, my goal weight seems to be most people's starting weight. I'm not comparing myself, just wondering. Um, no. There isn't. Uh, most people's skeletons are relatively similar. If you did actually have like a lower bone mineral density, that certainly wouldn't be a good thing. So there isn't such a thing as big boned, but you might have more muscle mass. 
And again, like actually, if you look and feel good, like who gives a flying F like what the weight actually says? And this seems like a weird thing. So like if you quote unquote carry it well as well, like who cares? Like if you feel good, you're a healthy weight range and someone else weighs more like I, I wouldn't give it a second thought. But technically, the answer is no. Um, Emily, how does how long does it take the body? Sorry. There's one of those ambulances going by. How long does it take the body to convert surplus food calories into body fat? This is quite a good question. I remember answering this in numerous different ways previously. To be honest, it doesn't really work like that. It's kind of in some ways almost instantaneous, but essentially all you need to know is that if there is excess energy, it will be stored somewhere. Now, some of that might be body fat, some of that might be glycogen in your muscles. Some of that might be glycogen in your liver. Some of that might be used to build muscle. But like, you can't get away with, like, I think sometimes when this question is asked, it's like, oh, so how long could I be in a surplus before I start seeing fat gain? And that's a kind of different question. And I guess it depends like how you store your, how you hold your fat and like what, what you notice most and like where you notice it and whether your fat is like more evenly distributed or... Yeah, I don't know, you notice it on your stomach first and then that all seems to go there initially and then it's distributed in other places, which again, like you can't control this, there's a huge genetic component to it. But any excess energy will be stored or used as something, right? So you can't just get rid of the energy. Like you either have to expend it in some way or store it in for later use. So there's no like time period to that as such. Um, okay. I know we should be doing quote unquote fake ways, but any tips on ordering from a chipper and a Chinese? What are the lower calorie options to go for or that you would bank calories to enjoy at the end of the week? Or are there at least the worst options so that I don't completely rip the ass out of the calorie allowance? So you don't always have to have quote unquote fake ways at all. You can absolutely enjoy a takeaway. So not a problem there. I'm not going to lie. I don't know my way around a like chip shop takeaway menu that well but you can always look up these things and just be like okay it's going to be roughly this is that worth it for me yeah I really enjoy it and I want to have it on a Friday night okay fine have it move on do bear in mind that they're probably very salty which means that your weight probably will jump up more than what you would expect as well especially things like Chinese. I mean, some of the sources and stuff, I think if you want to be quote unquote good and lower calories, I would avoid anything in a lot of sauce, whether that's like Chinese or Indian or anything like it's, that's adds a ton of calories. Um, I'd go for more things like if there's some kind of grilled chicken or like tandoori chicken without like the curry on top, like that kind of stuff is, is probably your best bet. Um, but on the flip side of that, if it's, you know, if it's like the one that you have, like you're only going to have it once a month, you're really looking forward to it, you really want to enjoy it, just have it, have what you want and move on. If you're having it more frequently, then I would I would have a look at like, okay, what can I have that's basically just like grilled chicken or similar and that doesn't have too much like sauce or dressing on it. Okay, what is it about cravings? Why is it, if this is even a thing, 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 I have a fab couple of days hitting my targets, getting my workouts in, generally feeling great. Um, but then out of the blue, I can have a day craving everything I haven't had yet. 
yeah, I haven't deprived myself before or feel like I've missed out on anything and I can't seem to stop eating or snacking. I then end the day feeling crap and annoyed at myself and the next day I just pick it back up where I left off. Like the blowout, say, didn't happen. There are some days I feel like I'm going mad. I always remember what you said. It's always the, the, the first bite or the one biscuit or the piece of chocolate that tastes the best. So honestly, I haven't cut anything out. Well done for that. Um, in fact, I probably enjoyed them more. Yes, because when you restrict something, you normally enjoy it more. And I know that will be taken out of context and can sound like over-restriction, but the point is like restriction isn't bad. Over-restriction is bad. So actually saying, I'm not going to have wine every night. I'm just going to have it on a Friday and Saturday. You'll enjoy that wine far more than if you'd had it every night. Same with chocolate. And there's even research behind this as well. People who abstain from chocolate for a week enjoy it significantly more than people who ate chocolate every day for that week. So I kind of think of it like that. And I do the same with like, I love an oat latte. Like, oh, so good, right? But I don't have more than one a day because I want to look forward to it every day. And I don't have like more than that. Main And honestly, mainly because I'm like, I want this to be like a nice thing that I look forward to every day and not just like something I have numerous times a day. I could have done that with once a week, but hey, um, yeah, so that's good. That's a good realization. And then you've said, I don't understand why my picky binge days happen. Thanks. And sorry for the long question. If you get to this one, I mean, it's a great question. I'm sure a lot of people can resonate. My initial thought is it's probably hormonal and I get days like this as well. Um, especially if given the context of this, like you're not over restricting, you're not avoiding food groups you're not on excessively low calories generally you feel really good it's probably a hormonal thing um so I would chalk it up to that uh, uh, I'm curious as to whether you lose weight your hunger reduces in other words do you get less hungry the smaller you are slash the less calories you need hope this makes sense um I'm curious as to whether as you lose weight your hunger reduces so yes and then also no so the kind of like what I just spoke about when you have lower body fat levels and this is especially to do with this hormone leptin that regulates hunger when you have lower body fat levels and leptin is low your hunger will increase because the body's like mm, it's not much energy here so we need to increase hunger in order for you to eat more fine now, when you have very high body fat levels, and I mean like obese range high for a prolonged period of time, your body becomes less sensitive to the presence of leptin because it's always there. So your brain isn't like as sensitive to the same level of leptin, which means that despite there being a lot of leptin present, the brain's still like, oh no, we're still hungry, right? This is why one of the reasons why overweight people are still hungry, because technically, they shouldn't be right they've got loads of stored energy so why would their body still be driving them to eat more well it's because they become less sensitive to this signal so this is why it's kind of a yes and no if you're in that position and you lose weight you will become more insulin sensitive and you might actually experience a drop in hunger because of that because you're now more regulated with your hunger signals but when i but then if you're not in that situation then actually losing weight is going to increase hunger right which you would, would kind of make sense right so at kind of either end of the spectrum 
you have like different responses to leptin because you might be leptin resistant if you're very, very overweight and then weight loss would mean that you were less hungry. Or if you're not very overweight and you lose weight, probably going to mean that you're more hungry. Um, but actually, I think now that I'm reading the question again, I guess you're more asking like, because you're now smaller and you technically require less calories, i.e. you're a smaller human being, your basal metabolic rate is smaller, you require less calories, does your hunger regulate with that? And so you then are driven to eat less. Some might say yes, if you believe that you can eat intuitively and maintain your weight, then yes, I would argue probably not. And I think that the like observational evidence of just basically everyone living in the UK or like the world more generally would probably agree with that, right? We live in this like obesogenic environment. If you eat to hunger, bearing in mind that you have to do quite a lot of work to actually figure out what's hunger, what's cravings, what like, how much do I actually need? Can I like read these signals myself initially? And am I eating because I'm bored or lonely or tired or, you know, for celebration reasons, like we don't just eat to hunger, right? I think even if we did just eat to hunger, unless your diet is primarily whole foods and you're really minimizing things like ultra processed foods, if not excluding them completely, I don't think it's realistic to just eat to hunger levels and maintain your weight. I think there will always be like either an element of restriction or monitoring your needs a little bit more closely. Um, and especially if you want to eat foods that are highly palatable, right? Because you're not, when you think about hunger signals, like what do you think you're going to be more full after? A 500 calorie big massive salad with chicken in or a 500 calorie donut like actually after the donut you're probably going to be more hungry because it's moreish right you're probably like oh i could do with like another half a donut actually after the salad you're probably going to be like pretty full because there's a ton of food volume there so you have to think about food choices within that as well but what an excellent question Okay, next question. Daisy, how much can Zolodex and Letrozole slow down weight loss, if at all? And it, right, okay, I'll do that one first. So these are drugs primarily used to treat hormone receptor positive breast cancer. So the way that they work is they reduce the amount of estrogen that is produced. Um, how can they impact weight loss? Not directly but indirectly because a lot of them kind of mimic the menopause which means that you can get a lot of the side effects of having low estrogen things like maybe like increased cravings lower mood lower motivation levels um like not able to sleep as well that can all impact your behaviors around food your behaviors around diet your behaviors around training and exercise so 100% yes, they can impact weight loss, but they don't impact weight loss directly, as in they're not like blocking your ability to lose fat, but they might make it significantly harder, which might mean that you need more support 100%. But you're in the right place for this because that is exactly what we do. But yeah, there's nothing inherently different that you would need to do. It just might make it a little bit harder. But again, it also might not if you don't experience any of those side effects. Um, and then is intermittent fasting a good idea or pointless? Thanks. Um, 
I would, I mean, I wouldn't say it's pointless. It works well for some people. You don't have to do it. It's a good way for many people to manage calories. If you enjoy eating in that way, then it's absolutely fine to do. I quite like it when it's not taken to extreme. So really just like having periods of the day where you don't eat or even just like it's quite useful often to have cut off periods between like, okay, well, I eat between the hours of, I don't know, 11 a.m. and 8 p.m., which is quite an often used um, time period. Fine. That just means that you're not snacking outside of those times and that it's easier to stick to your calories. Fine. But understand why it's working for fat loss. And that's to help you manage your calories, which means that if you did need to have breakfast at 10 a.m., it doesn't matter. Or if you did, don't know, miss a train and get back late and it's like eight o'clock at night and you've not eaten yet and it's not a big deal. Like with some common sense, it's often really useful for people. Not as good as the three to one method, but you know, it's getting there. Like it's good. It gives you some structure essentially. Um, Okay, right. I'm going to wrap it up there for today and I will get back to the rest of the questions. So many questions on this thread, which I freaking love. Um, And I hope that you enjoyed that. And I very much enjoyed it. And if you are interested in joining Commit 6, head over to esgfitness.co.uk forward slash Commit 6. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to share it with someone, that would mean the world to me. And I hope you have an awesome day.